Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. In this week's Science Revolution, yes, you're hearing me right. Big corporations getting the effing line behind the rest of us human beings here. Well, Joelle Gamble and Professor Richard Wolf join me for a survival guide in a coronavirus economy. And Richard Hallam, author of Common Sense for the 21st Century, drops by to explain the Extinction Rebellion and what they do. Stay tuned. Dear airlines, hotel chains, banks, and other industries who are begging Donald Trump and Congress for bailouts, get in the friggin' line. Most of you didn't even pay taxes last year. The front of the line this time needs to be people with medical and student debt, people who've lost their jobs, people who are homeless, and people working in the gig economy. Everybody else, get in the effing line. In 2008, the Bush administration, actually the Fed, was able to find over $20 trillion to bail out the banks and insurance companies. And the billionaires, by the way. They were making direct payments to billionaires, the Fed was, in 2008. Last year, Donald Trump found $1.5 trillion to cut taxes to the billionaires in America's largest corporations. It's not going to happen again if we have anything to say about it. They can all get in the effing line behind the rest of us human beings here. That was, that was my statement. And I stand by it. And in fact, the airline's asking for a $50 billion bailout. Yeah, they're going to be in trouble. They're going to be in bad, bad trouble. They already are. And Trump said, well, we're going to back the airlines 100%. Here's the thing. You either believe in capitalism or you don't. It really comes down to that. Do you believe in capitalism, Donald Trump, or do you not? Because if you believe in capitalism, then you know that sometimes companies fail especially big companies like big airlines. And what that does is it creates a market opportunity for small companies. And that would not, in my opinion, be a bad thing. In fact, it might be a very good thing. Now, I realize that there are a lot of small businesses out there that are small businesses, independently owned, things like that. And for those companies, I'm all in favor of helping them. That's not capitalism. That's free enterprise. But these giant corporations, for example, this is from the Axios newsletter today. The five biggest U.S. airlines spent 96% of their free cash flow over the past decade buying back their own stock. 96% of their cash flow went to buy back their stock. That's bankster activity. That's arbitrage. They're buying their own stock to jack the stock price up so that the senior executives and the CEOs who are paid largely in stock are making a friggin' fortune. So basically all of that profit that the airlines are making, they're converting into shareholder dividends. 
and their shareholders love it, and you know their senior executives are all massive shareholders. Well, they could have been putting it into a rainy day fund. They could have been capitalizing their pension funds for their employees. They could have been setting aside money for, you know, I, I mean, there's so many things they could have done with that money, but instead they put it in their friggin' pockets. And now they want a bailout? Really? I, I don't think so. The early reporting that we're getting from the New York Times on what Trump's Mnuchin's $850 billion bailout would look like is that much like uh, Bush's back in 2008 for the initial bailout, most of it goes to big corporations. Most of it goes to corporations. They're, they're saying out of the $850 billion, workers would get $100 billion. David K. Johnston is uh, writing over at the Raw Story. He said, if you distribute $100 billion to 168 million people, the working people of this country, 168 million people who work, um, that's about one week's wage for everybody. But if you distribute it to just people make under, who make under 33000 the bottom half of workers, that's not even enough for two weeks of wage. Mnuchin is talking about, we're going to send everybody a check. Good. We need to be doing that. We need to be sending every American some cash right now. And, and we need to be making sure that anyone who has lost their job as a result of this, and start with the obvious stuff, but it just, it's going to ripple right through the economy. Food service workers, waiters, servers in restaurants, cooks, uh, the, the maintenance, I mean, just the whole, there's entire industries that right now are frozen and are going to very quickly start melting down. And we need to catch the people. We need, with, in, with, with regard to the small businesses, we need to catch them too, because businesses owned by people, by individuals, by families in some cases. But these big corporations, these giant monster corporations, five airlines control the vast majority. I, I, I don't have the percentage, but it's huge. So 80, 90% of all air travel in the United States. I'm with Andrew Mellon. Andrew Mellon was Herbert Hoover's Secretary of the Treasury. And he said, let them liquidate, liquidate everything. Well, the problem was, you know, he let the big companies be liquidated. He, did, he also let the small companies be liquidated. And he let the people be liquidated. And that's why Franklin Roosevelt came in. And ultimately, if Trump wants to be successful, and if Steve Mnuchin wants to be successful, and as I said, I want them to be successful, this is a crisis that's not going to wait for a Democratic president to be installed. If they want to be successful, they need to look at what Franklin Roosevelt did in 1933 at the depths of the Great Depression when one-third of Americans were out of work and people were healthy and they could go to work. I mean, there wasn't an overlay of a, of a public health crisis like there is right now. So it's even more important now to do what FDR did, only do more of it. FDR created the WPA, hired a million people. The Works Progress Administration, they built roads and bridges and buildings. He created the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, hired another million people. They planted trees all over the country to stop the Dust Bowl. It worked. I mean, we, can, we could have massive programs, massive government programs, although right now during this crisis, let's just direct cash to Americans. We will get through this, my friends. We will get through this. Sponsoring the interview this week is New Leaf Natural CBD Oil. Boy, with all this flying around, you know, 
I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti, or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. I think it's the proper way to say that. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Naturals CBD oil is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NULeafNaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, NewLeafNaturals.com. That's NewLeafNaturals.com. That's NULeafNaturals.com. Code Tom, it's spelled T-H-O-M. NewLeafNaturals.com. On the line with us is an economist, Joelle Gamble, an economist and organizer principal with Reimagining Capitalism over at the Omidyar Network, board member of the Roosevelt Institute, the website Omidyar, O-M-I-D-Y-A-R.com, and her Twitter handle is Joelle, J-O-E-L-L-E underscore Gamble, G-A-M-B-L-E. The article she's written for The Nation, thenation.com, is titled A Survival Guide for the Coronavirus Economy. Joelle, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So I just saw this story in the international press. You're active. It's a European news website. I just want to read to you two paragraphs because it, it kind of echoes my sense of the things that you're talking about in your article. Denmark's government, the, the Danish prime minister just held a press conference. Denmark's government told private companies struggling with drastic measures to curb the spread of coronavirus that it would cover 75% of employees' salaries if they promised not to cut staff. Under the three-month aid period that will last until June 9th, the state offers to pay 75% of employees' salaries up to a maximum of 3,418 U.S. dollars, 23,000 Danish crowns per month while the companies pay the remaining 25. The Prime Minister, Fredrickson, said, if there's a big drop in activity and production is halted, we understand the need to send home employees, but we ask you, please don't fire them. I just saw Trump and Pence this morning. They're talking about big loans to big companies in America. But, you know, I don't know that there's any strings attached to those loans like this sort of thing. So, A, what do you think of that? And B, you know, what are your principal recommendations? I think what Denmark is doing is right on the nose, which is recognizing that people are the engine that makes the economy work. That yes, we do have some supply side problems and we should make sure that businesses don't suffer huge losses. But what fundamentally drives the economy is families' abilities to make rent, to buy goods, to take care of themselves and to stay home when they're sick or taking care of others who are high risk. And you know that's just about making sure that people have cash. Steve Mnuchin, Trump's Treasury Secretary, just recently announced that the administration is looking into, you know, cash, giving cash to Americans. But it might not be a a sufficient response. We've yet to see. Although it is a good sign that a lot of advocates called to just give cash directly to American families is working. So to make sure that we have a large enough stimulus and recognizing that the Fed has once again slashed interest rates, now is the time to borrow and invest in good jobs, green infrastructure, and really rebuild the economy to be more resilient in the future. And that's something that I do not think is in the conversation right now. And it's certainly not on the agenda of the president. Right. Over the short term, though, as 
literally our economy is shutting down. I mean, this is something that I think the last time this country saw anything like this or the world saw anything like this was probably 1918, 1919 with the so-called Spanish flu, where factories were closing down because so many people were sick. When Woodrow Wilson went over to Europe to to sign the peace treaty. He got so sick from the flu, they thought he was going to die. That's a mitigating factor that Franklin Roosevelt in 1933 didn't have to deal with. How specifically, outside of simply, you know, suspending debt payments or sending money to people or, I mean, how, how do you do that? We're talking literally trillions of dollars here. Right. So in addition to, you know, cash payments, I think one thing we haven't talked a lot about is the power of the government to buy things. Mm -hmm. For instance, we're worried about ventilators, we're worried about masks, we're worried about test kits. Those are all things that the government has the ability to purchase. And there are now companies out there who produce ventilators who are saying, you know, we can ramp up. We just need the demand. And that demand can actually come from government. Um, the government has the power to actually make make business start again. Yeah, there's a ventilator company told Fortune magazine they need a 90-day advance notice. So when we saw this crisis coming back in December, the administration could have contacted them. But they said that they could double, triple, even uh, even beyond that, increase their production of ventilators right now. It takes a few months for them to start coming off the end of the assembly line. But but he said that only government has the means to, to order these in the kind of numbers that are going to be necessary. And all these for-profit hospitals right now are freaking out and hoarding cash rather than buying ventilators. Right, right. Um, and that's, you know, I think that should be the biggest takeaway from all of this is, you know, we've seen decades of weakening of the power of government, you know, conservatives cut taxes and then starve the budgets and we fail to develop these kinds of competencies that other nations have done over the decades. And the Trump administration has been particularly terrible at this. And now in this crisis, government's the only thing that can scale to actually be able to help people. Philanthropy is doing what it can, but this is not philanthropy's job. It's not necessarily the place for philanthropy to do all of this alone. And, you know, individual communities are doing what they can. We're seeing local organizations popping up with relief funds for service workers. But this is frankly the federal government's job to stimulate the economy, provide cash. You know, if it's going to talk about bailing out companies, make sure that those bailouts actually go to workers, workers' health care, keeping workers employed at those companies if they're getting money from the federal government, and then using its purchasing power to ramp up the kinds of resources that we need to stem the epidemic. Because if we don't control it, you know, there's no other way to get the economy restarted again. In 1929, Andrew Mellon, who was the Treasury Secretary for Herbert Hoover, when the great crash happened, it might have been early 1930, actually, said, liquidate everything, right? It'll be a good thing. It'll get rid of the dead wood in the economy. And I'm looking at these giant airlines that have basically created monopolies in our air industry and have been ripping us off for years. And in Axios this morning, uh, they pointed out 96% of their free cash flow over the last 10 years has been used for share buybacks. In other words, to inflate mm-hmm. the, the stock, stock price so that their senior executives who are paid with stock make more money, basically. They're just taking all this cash themselves. And I'm thinking... Yeah, small companies, the, the, the bar down the street or the restaurant down the street, I would like the government to bail them out or you know, make it easy for banks to bail them out or whatever. But if United Airlines goes under, it seems to me like that opens an opportunity for somebody you know, to start an airline company. I mean, is it time for us to think 
you know, kind of a hybrid of Andrew Mellon and Franklin Roosevelt together, protect the little guy. But these big guys who've just been stealing us blind for 40 years, to hell with them. Or am I being too severe here? I think there's a balance between the long run developing of better companies that are accountable to their workers and to the customers they serve. And then the short run need to make sure that the airline pilots, the flight attendants who are putting out statements about their views on the bailouts right now, you know, are actually protected because we don't want Mm. those workers to suffer as a result. And so making sure that government assistance that's targeted at these industries is really actually targeted at the workers in those industries who are actually the ones who are most likely going to suffer if a company goes under. So it's the, it's the Danish example, then, that, that really we need exactly. to be looking at. That, you know, yes, we will give you money, United Airlines, but you have to give that money to your employees. It's, exactly. keep, keep them paid even if you're not flying airplanes. I get it. Mm-hmm. Joelle Gamble. Joelle, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Joelle's article, The Survival Guide for the Coronavirus Economy, is over at The Nation, thenation.com. You can check it out. Your Twitter handle is Joelle underscore Gamble. So as the economy falls through the floor, Professor Richard Wolff is on the line with us. He is an economist, a professor of economics, co-founder of Democracy at Work. Democracyatwork.info is the website, his personal website, rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at profwolf with two fs. He's the author of numerous books, his most recent, Understanding Socialism. Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. So I don't have a lot of very specific questions for you. I would love to hear your thoughts on, number one, what the Fed is doing in relation to our entire economic system, the banking system and all this kind of thing. I mean, we've seen we've been seeing bonds behaving in ways they're not supposed to because people are dumping them so frantically to cover margin calls and things like that. And to what extent might the Fed be able to ameliorate some of this? And what should Congress be doing? You know what or what are your thoughts in general on all this? Well, to be as blunt and and yet to retain at least some politeness, let me say that this is the most colossal failure of a system that I have ever seen. I wasn't alive at the time of the Great Depression, so elderly folks who were might correct me on this. The fundamental reality is this. There was no planning for this catastrophe. And that's a failure of our private sector, and that's a failure of the government. Because it isn't profitable for ventilator makers and test kit makers and all the other parts of the medical industrial complex, it doesn't pay them to produce goods that sit on a shelf waiting for a disaster. It doesn't pay them to stockpile those kinds of things. It doesn't pay the hospitals already squeezed in this country by Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements that are too low to maintain hospital beds in the event of this kind of a crisis. So the government didn't make sure it happened, and the private sector, driven by profitability, didn't either. And that is a mistake, and that is a failure, because we are going to, we have already lost more money by this crisis than it would have cost to do all of those things. So
So it's not that we can't do it as a society, but we are in a society where profit is the number one item, the priority, the goal, the bottom line. And when you have that as your bottom line, public health comes a distant second, and we're now living out that contradiction. Number one. Number two, equivalent to the lack of planning in the realm of health of our people is the lack of planning of what to do in the event of the kind of emergency, even if we were better equipped medically to deal with it, there would have had to be in place the facilities, the logic, the planning, uh, how to cope with a crisis like this. And it's not as though we haven't had it. The Great Depression was supposed to have taught us all kinds of lessons. Even more recently, the, the collapse of the market in the early months of 2000 around the dot-com crash, or then again in 2008 and nine around the second great mortgage disaster. We have had, because of our capitalist system, multiple crashes. We were supposed to have learned lessons. But the real lesson that we should have learned is that if you don't fundamentally change this system, as fast as you make a reform, the interests hurt by those reforms undo them. We passed, just to take the most gross example, 1933, the Banking Act, otherwise known as Glass-Steagall. The banks didn't want it. They fought it. When they lost that battle and it got passed, they went to work. And over the intervening years, first they evaded it, then they weakened it, and under the presidency of Bill Clinton, they finally got it repealed, a repeal that Bill Clinton, and I only mention that because the Democrats are as responsible here as the Republicans, he, you know, signed it, and so it became the law. What that was was a, an example of the reform being undone because reforms just don't go far enough. Okay, with that background, what you're seeing now is more reforms. I can't tell you, nobody can, whether they will be sufficient. You may have noticed that we went from a few billion dollars a few days ago to now a few trillion. That gives you an idea of the out-of-controlness of the people we refer to as our leaders. But the reality is we don't know what to do beyond the reforms, and we're barely able to get our heads around them. And that's not because we aren't smart, and that's not because people uh, at the top don't have brains. They do, but they are hampered by a system that focuses their attention and makes their acts work in such a way that we are in the total mess we're in now. Yeah, a remarkable. Just looking at total curative beds per thousand people, and China has 4.9 beds per thousand people. France has 4.1 beds, this are hospital beds, per thousand people. Germany has 6.2 hospital beds per thousand people. Japan has 7.9 beds per, per thousand people. The United States has 2.5. Yeah, it's beyond words. The story with the ventilators is the same. The, the story with the test kits. Uh, China now has a test kit that can get you the answer whether you are infected or not within a matter of, I believe, three hours, which is a time advantage in a period of rapid spread so we can isolate people and quarantine and prevent the spread. We don't use them. Uh, I did a tweet earlier today about how the Italian government, when it didn't get the help it wanted from the EU, turned to China, that's many, many weeks ago, got massive help from China compared to our government, which spends its time insulting and otherwise alienating 
China. I mean, when we look at comparable tests, it's it's stupefying, but it is again a, a consequence of a system that is simply not geared to putting the priority on the public health that the public needs and wants. We have about a little little less than a minute and a half. And I had written a post for our Facebook page and for buzzflash.com saying that we are entering Great Depression territory. And, you know, it took 100% of GDP to get us out of, uh, out of the Great Depression. We need to be looking at, over the next 12 to 18 months, a 10 to $15 trillion package to support the American people. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. And the reason it makes sense is look at the so far two most successful responses, the Chinese and the South Korean. By the way, quite different in their ideological persuasions of their leaders and so on. They mobilized everything. They mobilized the private sector. They mobilized the public sector. They were able to do that because they don't have an ideology in either country. And whether you call this socialist, capitalist, or anything else really is now secondary. They don't have an ideology that puts the private sector in some priority position so that the government is hamstrung and cannot mobilize that part of the society, especially when that's the major part, which it is in this country. So we lack that. But that's an ideological craziness of the American society that it has, in the name of freedom, failed to organize itself to deal with such a crisis. Right. And we've seen a, a, uh, I believe we went from one and a half million hospital beds nationwide in, in uh, 2000 or in the, no, in the late 1980s. Well, we lost about 500,000 hospital beds, is my record. That's right. Anyhow, but Professor Richard Wolf, democracywork.info. Thank you, sir. On the line with us, very happy to have Roger Hallam. He is a British environmental activist, organic farmer, and most significantly, uh, the co-founder of the Extinction Rebellion. He's also the author of a new book, Common Sense for the 21st Century, Only Nonviolent Rebellion Can Now Stop Climate Breakdown and Social Collapse. Roger, welcome to the program. Yeah, hi, thanks. Here in the United States, we occasionally hear a story about Extinction Rebellion, but the vast majority of them are limited to progressive websites. Tell us about the organization, how it came about, and what you all do. It came about because a whole bunch of people decided that reality has hit and the human race is heading towards extinction in so much as we understand the science. If we're heading for extinction and this is policy of world governments, then it seems to be justified to rebel against them. So, hence, Extinction Rebellion started off about 18 months ago with 15 people in a room in Bristol in the UK and now it's in about 70 countries around the world. Over 200,000 people are mobilized in the UK and it's involved in mass civil disobedience. I don't have a, a, a website here on my notes for Extinction Rebellion. Is it extinctionrebellion.org? Yeah, if you put that into Google, you'll get to various websites, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, so it would depend on what country you're in or that, that sort of thing, because they're... That's they're, right, yeah, there's different uh, organizations. Oh, yeah, xramerica.org yeah. here for the American version, I see. Okay, <coughs> cool. So what sorts of rebellion should we be engaging in, or do you engage in? In my book, Common Sense for the 21st Century, I'm basically giving my own views. So I'm not speaking on behalf of Extinction Rebellion in this interview or anything. Mm -hmm. Basically, I was planning to come to the United States to promote an argument. And that argument is that the political system is fundamentally incapable of responding to the climate emergency, given the time frame and given the urgency and the extremity of what is objectively required in order to stop putting 
carbon into the atmosphere and the mechanism through which to change political regimes is through mass civil disobedience and that seems again on the basis of the science or the social science in that case as the most effective way to bring about rapid political change in the shortest time possible when a government's engaged in genocidal activity. This is kind of an abstract conversation. Can you give me a specific example of these kinds of actions that you or others have engaged in that have produced a positive result? Or at least started a conversation? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, it's important to understand understand the extremity of what we're facing. I mean, a lot of journalists ask me about the tactics and, you know, what we do and what we don't do. And it's very easy to forget that we're actually facing something that human beings have never faced in their history, which is a complete breakdown of the geophysical system, the climate, the climate system. And that's inevitably going to lead to mass starvation, and mass starvation is going to lead to all the things that we read about in the history books, war, slaughter, rape, and social breakdown. And that's not some conspiracy theory. It's not some, you know, radical political thing. I'm a business person. I've been running organic business for 30 years. It's people across the political spectrum have been reading the science, and we've been looking at the science, as you well know, for 30 years now, and every, all the predictions are coming true. And, and so people are in this new emotional situation of realizing that two plus two does actually equal four, and and this hell is coming down the road. Now, only once you've sort of emotionally engaged with that in terms of the grief and the depression and the despair, can you start to understand what is required. And obviously, what is required is mass disruption to the system that's taking ourselves and most certainly our children to their deaths. And what that involves is mass civil disobedience, which, classically speaking, means people going to the large cities or the capital cities and staying there until a government fundamentally changes its policies. And that's the primary objective of Extinction Rebellion. Okay. Uh, it, it, and, and Common Sense for the 21st Century, your book is available pretty much everywhere, I'm assuming. George Monbiot wrote a, wrote a great piece for, on, the, on the front cover. Brilliant, wise, profound, and persuasive. Well done, Roger. And yeah, I don't think, I don't think, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't think I'm saying anything that is intellectually problematic. I agree. <laughs> you know, it's not difficult to understand the rationale. What's difficult is to engage emotionally with that reality. This is the whole point behind civil disobedience. That as, as we know, well know, human beings don't respond well to threats in the future. You know, they'll sit there until it happens. And then, of course, mm. in this case, it'll be too late. So the fundamental argument here is that you have to create that shock to the system before you get the geophysical shock. And that shock, the best way of doing that is to close down an economy or close down a city so that everyone starts to wake up to what's happening. Now, initially, of course, they're all going to hate you <laughs> because who wants to have, you know, their trip to work slow down? But as happens, if the cause is just, as you might say, if it's like a no-brainer of what you're saying, then people do come round to the view that this is actually happening because they're actually getting disrupted. And then you get large-scale attitude change. And in the UK, there was 3,000 people arrested last year, which was the biggest civil disobedience event in British history, even bigger than the suffragettes. And that created a massive change in public perceptions of exactly how serious this is. Like, 55% of the population 
in Britain now is very seriously concerned about climate change. Now, that's doubled, you know, or tripled over the last year or two. And that's primarily because it's been made real, because people can see thousands of ordinary people getting dragged off the streets by the police, you know, because yeah. they've decided they've had enough. Yeah, we saw this here in the United States in the 1960s with the civil rights movement. And we saw it here in the United States, not in my lifetime, but in the 19 aughts and the 19 teens with the suffrage movement. In both cases, they led to radical and substantial changes. In the case of the suffragist movement in 1920, women got the vote in the United States. And in the case of the civil rights, particularly in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, Rosa Parks, the the Montgomery bus boycott. uh, I mean, it's just a whole whole bunch of that was probably the most famous, you know, led to the the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Acts in 1965 and 66, as I recall, or maybe 64 and 65, but whatever. This works. Yeah, it works. I mean, it's a bit, again, it's a bit of a no brain and there's overwhelming historical evidence to it. So, I mean, obviously not straight away and not every, obviously in every case, right? You're dealing with right. human societies and what have you. But <clears throat> compared with the alternatives, which is engaging in violence or engaging in, you know, conventional political activity, sending emails and all that sort of stuff that's been going on for 30 years, this is by far the most effective way of doing it. But I think it's really important to understand that this isn't like previous social movements in the sense that um, what we're dealing with now is like a cliff edge, you know, yes. e- even though like racism and women's rights and all these things were terrible social issues in time, there were fundamentally linear problems, you know, they weren't getting worse right. by and the And we're year. dealing now it's with literally the extinction of the human race. Roger, I'm sorry, yeah, we're, we're right. out of time, but Roger Hallam, his book is Common Sense for the 21st Century. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And he's the co-founder of the Extinction Rebellion. You can look it up on your uh, favorite search engine. Roger, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks very much. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.